Good evening, good afternoon, hello wherever you are in the world. It is Friday, the 5th of July, July already. Um, half of the year has gone. Have you been happy with um, what you've achieved this year? If not, you better start cracking the whip because half of 2013 is already up. So welcome to July. You're listening to episode number 23 of the It's a Monkey podcast. My name is Kevin Garber. I am the CEO and co-founder of 89M, home of products such as Managed Flutter. I'm coming to you semi-live from which I'm not exactly sure what it means. It means anything other than dead, I guess. But it's I'm coming to you semi-live from... <laughs> from still ne- living. <laughs> still living. Not uh, We are pre-recorded. But coming to you semi-live from the East Village in Manhattan. And the other end of my Skype line in Sydney, Australia, is my co-founder of 89N, James Peter. How you going, Kevin? I'm good. How are you, James? Yeah, great. We've got a bit of sunshine here for the first time in a week. Yeah, you are in the middle of winter, I'm in the middle of the summer, you are suffering from the, the wet and the cold, and I'm suffering from um, the intense mugginess and the heat. Yeah, we should just meet in the middle, that'd be a lot nicer. Do you think one day we'll ever be able to control the weather in a way that totally won't damage the environment? Do you think that would, we could actually pull that off one day? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Not nowhere near in our lifetimes, but I, I, I don't think there's any technical reason why it's not possible with um, you know, sufficient sort of nanorobots and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure it's definitely possible to, to physically control the weather. It's um, so many inputs into the system, though. It's, I mean, it must be one of the most highly complex systems possible. It's very complex to predict, but it's, um, but it's, probably, uh, it's probably easier to control than it is predict predict in many ways i mean oh, okay <laughs> that's not strictly speaking true it's, it's very difficult to control but if you if you could do it there's no um i mean there's 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 um complexity reasons why you can't predict it but there's no um you know given a sufficient level of technology there's no reason why i can't imagine you could control the weather um you know, because it w- relies on rate deterministic things like you know the amount of condensation in the air and um you know the direction air, the air is flowing all that kind of stuff you know, there there were interesting rumors around the time of the Olympics. Were you in Sydney during 2000, during the Olympics? Yep, sure was. I mean, I don't know if you remember some of the rumors that um, the weather was being controlled to make sure that it was perfect weather. Do you, do you remember oh, yeah, any vaguely. of those rumors? Yeah, I do remember that, yeah. And I do remember, I can't remember what time of year it was. I think it was August or September, if I remember correctly, or maybe mm, it was June, right. July. Anyway, the weather was absolutely insanely perfect yeah, that whole stunning. time. Yeah, it was just blue skies, clear, and Sydney's generally got very good weather. But that, even for Sydney, that was quite spectacular. And you're just like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, as you know, but that was like, <laughs> mm, wow, that that that's just a little bit too good, even for me. Uh, yeah, I don't think I have that much faith in the Australian government. <laughs> they're doing well, but not that well. Ah, <laughs> uh, but look, they're, they're, they're you know there's rumors of the American government and the you know being able to pull off things like that. True, true. It's interesting. I had uh, I met someone who works at a correctional facility, as they call them, um, here in the states. And mm. would you believe? Um, so she she's involved in internal affairs, etc. But would you believe that there are cases apparently? Um, you, you know, regularly enough to, to be worried about where inmates are accidentally released due to um, glitches in their database and they have to try recapture them. Isn't that crazy? Wow, yeah, that's amazing. It's so, a very uh, uh, critical bug you don't really don't want to get. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's an admin error or if it's a... a, a but um, yeah, she was telling me sometimes they have to go and uh, just say, sorry, you were released in error. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, hard time if you were that inmate. <laughs> yeah, no, it wouldn't be fun. So I found out all sorts of interesting things. Anyway, let's get to, into the world of tech. Coming up on the show, we have a jam-packed episode for you. We Later on in the show, we're going to be talking to Lauren Anderson, who's the Chief Knowledge Officer of an organization called Collaborative Consumption. And we'll be talking about collaborative consumption. Now, that's a big word which you might not be familiar with, but I'm pretty sure you're familiar with some of the sites that are actually um, all about collaborative consumption, sites like Airbnb um, or car sharing sites and things like that. So collaborative consumption is about basically making better um, use of, of, of assets or resources that are, are lying dormant. So we'll be talking to Lauren a little bit later in the show. And, um, but in the meantime, as usual, we'll be t we're going to cover some of the news. <coughs> Before I get to the news, remember, please tweet us at itsamonkey.com. No, actually, sorry, Monkey Podcast. Um, you can also comment on our website if you are listening via iTunes, please please hop on to itsamonkey.com and comment on some of the stories. We love hearing from you. Tweet us, email us. You know how to get hold of us. Anyway, James, news this week. Um, Twitter's been experimenting with a popular tweet history feature. Yeah, they have. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite interesting. It looks like almost like a, um, what are they called? Callbacks, I think, on blogs, uh, where essentially it's, it's listing all of the URLs which have embedded a tweet. Um, which, yeah, is very, very new and uh, quite an interesting approach. I think it's very, yeah, very interesting for the big brands and the journalists and the uh, and the politicians. And it's it's almost like, yeah, it's it, it, it's crossing over into the sort of SEO-ish type of world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can you can understand why they would do it because it would um, it would definitely motivate the larger sites to em embed more tweets because it's going to drive that traffic back to them. Um, and it's obviously quite a privileged, privileged place. You know, you don't actually have that many links on the tweet stream. So to be in there, um, you know, is pretty, pretty powerful for websites. So you can, yeah, definitely see what they do. It's a strong move. And they've only been testing the feature. So it hasn't, um, it's not sort of live anywhere and it's not guaranteed it will be, a, uh, be rolled out um, everywhere. But um, yeah, I, I hope they do. I, I'm, not, I'm personally quite interested. I'd be quite interested to see where tweets are embedded from. So from a user's point of view, I think it's quite good. It'll be a, a great way to discover interesting sites as well. If you see a tweet that you're interested in and you see that it's been embedded in X site that's related to that tweet of topic, it'd be quite an interesting sort of, you know, discovery mechanism. Yeah, that, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, discovery would be a very useful part of it, yeah. Um, I've noticed that most sites do actually embed tweets properly. I, 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 I come across increasingly less sites that perhaps take a screenshot or, or, or don't actually use the embed tweets feature. Yeah, it's definitely become more popular. Um, I, mean, I, I suspect, particularly with the major sites, um, Twitter's probably got their PR people, um, you know, subtly um, prompting any writers who don't uh, follow, you know, the correct way of doing it. Um, but um, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely much more common to see tweets properly embedded these days, and is to see screenshots or just copying and pasting of them. Um, so yeah, they've done well in actually getting that feature out there and um, and getting it popular um, because it is probably a little bit harder to embed the tweet than it is to just copy and paste it. So um, yeah, no, they're doing well. What happens if someone deletes the tweet? What happens to the embedded tweet? Do you know? Does it break nicely? 
Um, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, when you embed a tweet, you actually put in the content of the tweet anyway. So you're not just sort of embedding, um, you're not just putting in uh, in the embed code. It's not like a video where you're just basically putting a link. You actually put the content of the tweet and the embedding code essentially just kind of prettifies it. Um, right. So that's a really good point. I've got a feeling if a tweet was deleted, it would probably still show up um, because it is that content still is there on the website. I mean, uh, journalists, um, media sites, particularly gossip sites, love taking screenshots of controversial tweets because they know often they they do get deleted. Yeah, the live one actually on on Twitter, yeah, could get deleted. Yeah, yeah, but I've got a feeling the embed one still would would exist. So we'll see if that feature um, gets rolled out. I know Twitter are very measured about the features that they roll out. They're very influenced by the founder, Jack Dorsey, who's very much a, a minimalist and uh, is a big believer in just only introducing features in very specific ways. And, you know, the site is doing so well. I guess there is a lot of argument for don't, don't fix what isn't broke, uh, uh, very much like the Craigslist style. Although, you know, James, interestingly, you know, being in the States, and being, uh, you know, where Craigslist traditionally has been very popular, that they traditionally Craigslist is used for everything in the U.S. But I've noticed this trip, it's definitely, um, its heyday seems to be a little bit over. I mean, Craigslist has been famously unchanged for years. It's, it's, it's an incredibly ugly site, functional but ugly. It's just, you know, circa 1997. Mm. You know, that's almost being generous. I think finally... You know, a lot of the new sites, be, be it Airbnb or be it, um, you, you know, on the job side of things, LinkedIn, I just, it's, you know, it doesn't get talked about. People don't say that they've bought things on Craigslist as much. I, I'd be very interested to know what their traffic and, and revenue numbers um, are like. Yeah, it is a good point. It definitely seems to be falling out of the spotlight a little, a little bit. And they famously have, you know, pushed back on, on, not, on not evolving it. And um, it's, it's always a fine line to know when to leave something and when to evolve it. Because if you get the timing wrong and you sort of miss that, that evolution that people do want, you, you, you can be out of step. But the, there is a lot to be said for simplicity and when things work to leave them alone as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's definitely two schools of thought there. I mean, I've always been a little bit frustrated with Craigslist that they haven't done anything more with it. It's always, you know, it seems like such an amazing opportunity they had to really, you know, reinvent that space. Um, and But there are obviously lots of other people who have attempted to come up and um, and do the same thing. And yeah, maybe one of them will, will take over somebody who's just, you know, doing everything better than they are. Um, if they can get the traffic, then, um, then, then yeah, it could come back to bite them eventually. If I remember correctly, I think Craigslist are turning over somewhere between 50 and $80 million a year. I must stand to be corrected. Um, based mainly on classified ads. I know we've, uh, the, the few times I put a job ad on there, they do charge you, I can't remember, 20 bucks per category or something. So they are, they are turning. I mean, it's not Facebook numbers. It's not billions. But they, they are turning over some nice money. Look, I mean, considering the size of the network and the amount of transactions that it that it drives, I mean, they're definitely making you know a pittance off of the money that's going through. But um, well, they're making nothing essentially off a lot of it. Um, but you know, that's always been their business model. So I guess that's um, you know, it's hard to say they're doing the wrong thing. They're being successful at it. So um, yeah, who knows? I think, I think there was also some link that uh, that um, AOL, not AOL, eBay 
bought them at some stage and there was and the soul I can't remember the politics behind it um, I'm just trying to I'm trying to look um, look up their turnover here um, see seeing if I can if I can find it. it's expansion operation financials um, da -da 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 -da. yeah because it is of course a um, private company here we go. The, f the <laughs> company does not formally disclose financials. Analysts have reported varying figures for its annual revenue, ranging from 10 million in 2004 to possibly 150 million in 2007. So, who knows? Mm -hmm. They are ma they are making money, but um, interesting. Yeah. Um, so talking of money and gossip, uh, you know, Silicon Valley uh, swealing and dealing. Um, interesting story about. Bebo, the social media network that probably a lot of people have not heard of, but it goes back to 2005 when it was created, and it was bought by AOL in 2000, and uh, I'm not exactly sure when, 2007 or 8 for 800, oh, there we go, 2008, for $850 million. Hmm. And the news behind it is that the founder says he is now bought back from AOL, um, who drove it into the ground for $1 million and plans to reinvent it. That's not bad selling something for $850 million and buying it back for $1 million. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, wonder what that means about its growth. Obviously, it's probably been a bit stagnant um, over that period. Um, I mean, I've never really, have you ever used Bebo? I don't really know that much about it personally. I don't know much uh, that about uh, about it as well. I know it's popular in in certain um, in certain markets. That it's mm. you know quite, I don't know if it's the the Philippines or um, but of course you know the interesting thing is that um, you know the BBC said that the AOL purchase of Bebo was the worst deals ever made in the dot com era, and actually the CEO of AOL at the time actually lost his job over that acquisition. It was just such a ridiculous acquisition. Oh wow! Because they overpaid. Significantly overpaid. Right. Because I mean that number kind of seems a bit small compared to you know what you get these days. But I guess uh, given that its growth didn't really continue, it hasn't done done amazing things. Well, I think that's what, I, and I think AOL was such a conglomerate that to find its place and to find some synergies was was very challenging. Where something like with Instagram, Facebook is is not such a you know confusing conglomerate. They can the, the bolt on you can you can see where the synergies can come from. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it'd be very interesting to see you know back in the hands of the of the is is he the founder the person who's bought it. Yeah, he's the co-founder. I think it was his wife that he's he, he's he started it with. Right. I mean, it'd be very interesting to see, you know, if it when it's sort of back in his hands, uh, you know, where where the site goes. I mean, we often hear stories of, you know, once the the founders are out of the picture, you know, sometimes the sites can kind of lose their their vision and direction. So yeah, it will be an interesting test, I guess. Um, it's probably one of the most sort of high profile of these sort of um, repurchases that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, some of the famous um, Australian entrepreneurs, uh, the Rupert Murdochs and Kerry Packers, and I think um, Alan Bond, and they were, were famous for for selling their companies at the peak, and then other people, you know, driving them into the ground and buying them back and doing it again. So, um, <laughs> you know, the good entrepreneurs definitely have a bit of a have a bit of a knack for that. Of course, m uh, MySpace was bought by um, Justin Timberlake, 
and and crew as well and they're trying to get that going again so yeah not not terribly successfully but um yeah apparently it's a great ui i haven't had a play with it but apparently the user interface in the new uh, myspace is pretty good i played around with it quite a bit it's very um I like it in that it's um, it's very bold and um, and innovative, and it, it's sort of um, it's a very confident thing to do. Um, but I think it's probably the wrong thing to do. It's it's just not very approachable. I think it's really hard for people to use. It's it's sort of in this new sort of modern design style. It doesn't have a lot of throwbacks. You know, they're basically kind of reinventing um, the whole interface. It doesn't really feel like a website at all. And uh, you know, given that they're Trying to sort of struggle for users and market share is uh, it's not it's not a very good thing to do, um, and yeah I know I've from from the numbers and stuff that I've heard they're they're really doing quite badly I think they're they're having a hard time getting people to use the new interface. Social networks are tough. They are tough. I mean they are really you know they're not an easy thing to get going. It's a little bit of a winner takes all market in 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 many ways. Yeah, look, I, mean, I suspect the reason why they did it was you kind of have to, you know, take take a big bold step with these things, and um, you know, either you either you win or you don't. I mean, I guess they were trying to be sort of the brand new thing and become popular that way. Um, I guess trying to take Facebook's market share, but um, yeah, I think it's probably a gamble that hasn't paid off particularly well for them. You know, you know what I think is a space, a social media space ripe, James, for opportunity is the mm. enterprise social media space. I mean, all there is is LinkedIn. And whilst LinkedIn is marginally useful, in a, but it's, it's, there is something missing from it. Uh, I mean, it's boring. I hate it. It annoys me. I use it. It just, uh, the, the, and, the, and it's the only enterprise social media network with any real traction out there. I mean, I mean isn't there opportunity to, to take a different angle on it and, and do something in that space? Yeah, that's, that's quite a good point, actually. Um, now you say it. I mean, a lot of the the enterprise social networks have they either take a very enterprise point of view or they take a very consumer point of view. There's nothing that sort of seems to have been invented from the ground up, um, you know, really for for enterprise um, and something that that allows you to be both an in, an internal company network and an external network. I think that would that would be really interesting. I mean, you kind of have Yammer, which is you know internal company communications. And then you kind of have LinkedIn, which is, you know, external job hunting type stuff. Um, but you don't really have the thing that's, there's nothing that kind of crosses those boundaries. I think that's, that's a good point. There's, there's definitely space there for something. I think um, you make a terrific point about Yammer. I mean, it would be a wonderful, I mean, what a great opportunity to extend Yammer into a, into a social network um, and do a better job than LinkedIn. I've just, LinkedIn, it's, it's, I, yeah. I don't know. It's it's. I, I, I always feel bad being 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 critical about something, particularly if they they so successful. But there, there's something that's there's opportunity there. But um, anyway, interesting there's probably space. there's probably other opportunity in the sense that um, you know many companies, many sort of enterprises, kind of expect their their employees to kind of be communicating on social media as well. And if there was some way that that network could. Um, I guess link in with the other um, existing social networks. It would be a very interesting way to kind of you know organize, manage your your employees into um, you know communicating with the outside world, but through control channels. Exactly. Um, I mean, I mean the yeah. problem. That's exactly the problem with LinkedIn is that it's a one-dimensional flat experience. 
Yeah. And it, it doesn't have that, that, that um, sort of stream type of dimension that all the other networks have. It's just essentially an address book. I guess the problem you face is as soon as you have a little bit of success, you probably suddenly get locked out of access to all these other networks so, as soon as they see you as a competitor. Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a tricky thing, but I think there's definitely opportunity. And um, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, these types of chats are, are, are what uh, James and I spend a lot, of, a lot of time talking about the industry and opportunities and, uh, and some of them spin out into, into ideas. And this is, this is pretty much you, you, you're listening to us just, you know, usually sitting in the boardroom in Sydney <laughs> and just chatting about the industry and opportunities and uh, if we had unlimited funds and and smart engineers we, we always feel we can uh, roll out the products but they it's not as simple as that uh, unfortunately scaling scaling innovation is not easy no implementation is always the hardest part it's always the hardest part scaling servers is, is scaling servers is hard enough and scaling innovation is really hard definitely yeah so just um, finally I've just got that that Bebo um, um, up here so uh, in terms of user um, user base it was quite interesting where um, where was it um, usage the website at the height of popularity overtook MySpace to become the most widely used social ne networking website in the United Kingdom eventually registering at least 10.7 million unique users hmm. um, and the site was particularly popular with Irish users. At one point, it claimed to have over a million Irish users and data from Alexa ranking it as Ireland's most visited site. Mm. I mean, the important point from these stories is always that um, things can change really, really quickly. You know, the, the moats around these things are never as big as they appear. Users can just move in a, in a heartbeat, particularly these consumer internet products. The enterprise is a lot more sticky but the consumer internet products, boy, people can just zip over in a couple of months. Yeah, just takes a few, um, few of your friends to sort of jump onto the next new thing, and um, as soon as you know the old network starts to die, then it kind of forces everybody across. So, yeah, no, it's very easy for for millions of people to move in uh, in you know a couple of months. And it's amazing always these big companies paying, you know, nearly a billion dollars and with all resources and a lot of smart people. And then in 2010, on April, 2000, uh, April 7, 2010, AOL, AOL announced that it would either sell the website or shut it down. This was mainly due to the falling numbers of unique users. Um, mm. And then they sold it to a, uh, to an, a private equity company in 2010 who's now sold it on to the founder, the original founder for a million dollars. So... Great case study if you're an MBA student or a wannabe entrepreneur or, you know, it's just, wow, really full circle. So uh, th that was an interesting story. Who knows? Maybe Bebo, uh, maybe in a year's time we'll all be, maybe Bebo will be the new LinkedIn. Could be, could be. <laughs> you're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. It is Friday the 5th of July. Every alternate friday we are with you we know that a lot of you listen to this podcast while you are using manage flitter so uh, we hope that um yeah to keep your company while you're cleaning up your twitter account and uh, we're going to be talking about collaborative consumption after the break so stay with us and we'll be back after the short break the it's a monkey podcast is brought to you by check dog 
Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error free. Thanks for staying with us. You with Kevin Garber on the It's a Monkey podcast. Now, the word collaborative consumption, I'm sure if you're in the online world in any shape, manner, or form, you've probably heard about it. In fact, even if you don't know the word, you have probably used some of the platforms and services that fall under the, the banner of collaborative consumption, Airbnb, Etsy, um, Lyft, uh, all sorts of services like that. And... Um, you know, collaborative consumption is basically the, the, the word that, that talks about uh, how society is moving from a, a production consumer model to a peer-to-peer type consumer model. And it's something I've wanted to talk about on the podcast for quite some time. So I managed to track down an expert who happens to be from Sydney, Australia as well, but is in San Francisco. So at the end of my Skype line, I have Lauren Anderson, who's the Chief Knowledge Officer of Collaborative Lab. Lauren, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks, Kevin. Lauren, give us a, a, a little brief overview of collaborative consumption. I think uh, most people uh, that listen to this podcast are probably aware of it, but there may be a few who it just sounds a little bit buzzwordy and not quite sure what it still means. Of course, yeah. So I work with the author Rachel Botsman who wrote a book a couple of years ago called What's Mine is Yours. And in the book, she really described the rise of this new economy and this trend of collaborative consumption, which she defined as the reinvention of some really old market behaviors that kind of fell out of favor. So things like bartering, swapping, exchanging, renting, basically turning to your neighbors to to get the things you want and need rather than having to own everything outright. But what's happened with uh, you know the the rise of technology over the last uh, five to ten years is that we can now use technology to enable these behaviors on a scale and in ways that we could have never actually even conceived of before. So now we can locate the drill in our neighbor's house three doors down and we can share a ride with somebody who's coming across town that we've never met before. We're really opening up all of these different uh, ways of collaborating with each other and, and able to scale these behaviors on a much bigger way as well. I mean, was Airbnb the first trailblaze? I mean, was was that the, the, the platform and company that really put collaborative consumption on the map? I, I'd say yes in terms of the, the way we think about collaborative consumption now, but we actually refer to companies like eBay and Craigslist as the godfathers or the grandfathers of collaborative consumption because they really pioneered us using technology to connect with strangers online and actually swap and exchange things in the real world. Uh, but it really was more of the social technologies and you know things that emerged post-Facebook that really have enabled these things to scale even further. And, uh, you know, Zipcar was kind of in between the the car sharing platform that enabled us to use technology like, you know, uh, swipe cards and our mobile phones to borrow cars that are just parked on the street uh, at any time uh, for as long as we want to. So that was that next transition. But yes, Airbnb and the likes of Relay Rides, TaskRabbit, what we're seeing here is 
we're using technology and including mobile and social and location-based technology in totally different ways um, that have really supercharged this collaborative consumption movement and, and brought it into uh, much more of a mainstream focus. Are the big brands scared of this trend of collaborative consumption or, the, or are they embracing it? Because I would imagine something like, for instance, um, you know, Airbnb or people, you know, sharing power tools or even sharing cars. Essentially, it's, it's, um, it's, it's stunting purchase of new equipment. I mean, that's the whole idea in a way is if I want to use a drill for a weekend, if I can't borrow a drill and it's a hundred bucks, I might still go and buy one. But if my neighbor's got one, I'm going to go use his drill and they've lost out on that purchase. But more importantly, where I think, um, you know, what I'm quite interested in is that it, if it actually stunts demand, does it actually stunt innovation ultimately because, you know, less products are sold, there's less profits, that whole sort of chain, that whole value chain just sort of collapses? Is that mm. a significant thing to, to uh, be concerned about? I think there's actually a couple of things going on there and some of them are exactly right and we're actually seeing a trend in that direction and others, so, so if you look at uh, the way companies are interpreting this trend, we've actually seen both sides of, of the reaction spectrum. You know, we've seen uh, the hotel industry, for one, getting quite concerned about the likes of Airbnb and other peer-to-peer -peer accommodation platforms and actually advocating quite strongly that they're, they're closed down. And they've had the support of uh, government in, in some cases where they've been really taking a long, hard look at the, the regulation around short-term accommodation and actually being quite obstructionist to Airbnb activity and other peer-to-peer -peer accommodation activity. On the other side, we've actually seen um, a lot of collaboration in the space from probably the most unlikely uh, suspects, the, the automobile manufacturing industry. So we've seen companies such as BMW, Daimler, uh, we've seen Ford and GM actually getting in on the action, whether it's starting their own um, car sharing platform or in fact partnering with one of these new entrepreneurial startups in the space. Uh, we've seen that kind of activity really changing the landscape of, of mobility as we think about it and, and seeing quite a proactive approach from the incumbents uh, in the space. In terms of your question around uh, the, the reduced demand, therefore reduced innovation. I think reduced demand is one thing, but in fact that in itself is causing a whole new kind of innovation in the space. Uh, when, we, when we think about using or buying less resources, it in effect means that the things that we are buying need to be more resilient, they need to be more shareable, they need to have longer lifespans than our current products do. So we're actually saying to companies, go back to the drawing board and give us a, a lifelong product again, something that used to be the standard uh, procedure back in the, the 40s and 50s until the idea of uh, you know, inbuilt obsolescence came into play. Uh, and we're actually saying, give us something that May, that means we have a relationship with you over the lifetime of this product, but that in fact this product might have one, two, three, four or five owners over the course of its life and it will be maintained and upgraded and uh, customised according to the new owner's demands. And that, that's a whole new uh, kind of innovation that we do need to see because at the end of the day we can't continue to produce and consume the way we have been over the last few decades because we're experiencing resource shortages and we need 
need to be smarter about uh, waste management and things like that. So companies really need to step up and take responsibility for, for the lifetime of their product. Uh, we've started to see companies like Home Depot and, and Lowe's here in the States thinking differently about uh, their their tool and DIY businesses and actually encouraging things like tool rental or creating uh, shared facilities where people can have access to really high-powered tools that uh, you know, the average person would never buy for their home, but in fact gives them more scope and opportunity to, to engage in DIY projects. So that, that way of thinking is starting to permeate and I think it's going to end up flowing further up the chain to the, to the producers of these goods as well. I had an interesting chat with a cabbie in New York yesterday who was an older chap and he was uh, venting his frustrations with technology very loud to me. <laughs> but one of the things we started talking about how, you know, um, obsolescence and the quality of things. And he said his friend bought a $10,000 refrigerator brand was Sub-Zero, which apparently is, is a high-end brand. And after two to three years, this things there was some sort of issue with the door or something happened. And they didn't even attempt to repair it. They came and they, they pulled it out and just gave him a brand new one, which was, was probably a cheaper option in terms of labor and working out what was going on. So That's crazy. I think that, that kind of modus operandi is really going to, to start to be perceived as incredibly negative. Uh, you know, people, are, people have been less conscious to date about the end result and you know if, if they can replace it rather than get something fixed it's been the easier option but I think companies need to seriously consider what is cheap when you think about the embodied energy of that whole process and is replacing something really um, cheaper overall than actually creating a more of a service industry around fixing that and I think that's where you start to look at the opportunities that the collaborative consumption space has when you look at services like TaskRabbit or you know the, these these skills actually being outsourced to smaller um, you know individual experts rather than the companies having to take responsibility for everything but in fact we're seeing the, the rise of repair and local DIY experts who can actually come along and, and play their part to to ensure the life cycle of that product can be extended. But I believe um, Avis bought Zipcar, did they not? That's right, yeah. So we're seeing, again, the the traditional car rental industry, which in effect you know, could be perceived as a collaborative consumption model, except that when we use car sharing has a slightly different use case to when we might rent a car for a longer period of time. But Avis has really seen that this is a huge shift in not just car rental but car ownership and I think that having having a piece of that pie has become an important part of their strategy. People tend to perceive this as a really negative result for car sharing or for Zipcar as a company but in effect the same end is still being met and we're, we're able to reduce our uh, car ownership needs and in fact having a company like Avis come in and expand Zipcar is actually making the service easier to use and and more um, more widely spread than perhaps Zipcar on its own would have been able to achieve through a more slow growth process. Um, what, what are governments, local and state governments, I mean the, the only example, well the clearest example I guess I see is here in New York where there's a public-private partnership with Citibank, with the city um, 
bicycle network, both in Australia and um, the US. Um, any any uh, governments sort of really, you know, getting involved? There's obviously lots of benefits, you know, ranging from sense of community and neighborhood getting involved in, in, in consuming and making things better right through to, um, you know, just just enhancing health through cycling. I mean, can you mm. t are you involved in any of those? Yeah, so there's actually a huge amount of both opportunity and activity in the space of uh, local government getting involved with collaborative consumption. We're seeing a lot of activity in the U.S., currently around how to create more supportive legislation for some of these more disruptive businesses such as the real-time ride sharing networks like Lyft and Sidecar or car sharing, peer-to-peer -peer car sharing where people are actually making their own cars available and what are the insurance ramifications of that. So we're starting to see a lot more engagement at that level and in fact uh, just last week the U.S. Conference of Mayors, so 15 mayors actually passed a shareable cities resolution, uh, which stands for being able to bring the sharing economy activity and collaborative consumption activity into the to the limelight, so to speak, and to, to make it a priority in terms of understanding what it can do and what its impact can be on the local community. Uh, around the world, we've seen similar kinds of public-private partnerships regarding bike sharing. It's definitely been one of the most prominent examples where the city partners with a brand to make that service available. But in fact, there have been hidden uh, private public-private partnerships going on even with things like car sharing because you really need the support of the council to be able to give uh, the car sharing fleet homes in, in car parks, public car parks around the cities. So we're seeing a lot of that activity happening in Australia and everywhere else in the world as well. Uh, I think the idea of, you know, building collaborative cities and, and understanding the relationship that these kinds of companies can have with cities is really needing to be seen through the lens of bolstering the existing public services that are offered and actually uh, relieving some of the pressure on the city to provide all of those services by instead tapping into this network of peer-driven services that um, really stand for people helping themselves and helping each other out more. Um, we've seen cities from Seoul uh, in in South Korea to Sydney to San Francisco all really trying to understand what this means for their city. You know what would be terrific would be collaborative politics and collaborative <laughs> working out the budget. You know, I really think politics and, and even our democratic model comes from a time time when technology was in a very, very different place. Exactly. And, and in fact, that, that point that you just raised around, um, it's called participatory budgeting, and we've actually started to see quite a revival in those ideas even related to collaborative consumption as well. So Porto Alegre, a city in Brazil, uh, actually pioneered this idea of participatory budgeting, and we're seeing it emerge in Lisbon, in Portugal, uh, and both of those cities as well have started to take a strong interest in collaborative consumption more broadly. So there are definitely some connected themes there. It would be really easy these days for governments to have, you know, many referendums on a, on, on a million issues. I think, mm -hmm. I think it would be really exciting if there was a progressive politician that would really look at technology and look at the, the system and start from scratch and, and, try mm -hmm. to, and, and try to, you know, embed it in the political um, system in, in, in ways that really make sense. It's, you know, the political systems in the Western democracies seem so broken at the yeah. moment. There seem to be such a gap 
between the productivity and what people want to what's actually getting churned out and importantly the people involved in it um, it doesn't seem to be necessarily attracting the right type of person but perhaps Absolutely. perhaps that's a chat for another day so Lauren <laughs> the, the collaborative lab to, uh, tell us a little bit about what you guys do I know you've you involved in in, in Australia and, uh, and the US so tell us a little bit about uh, what your work involves Sure. So uh, one part of our work is the collaborativeconsumption.com website, which is really a place to uh, curate and aggregate the most important news and events that are happening related to collaborative consumption around the world. Uh, and we also have a directory of examples of collaborative consumption on that website as well. So people can start to see the scope of the types of activities we're talking about. We currently have more than 1,000 examples of collaborative consumption in that directory. And a huge part of the website is actually our network of global curators. Uh, it's a team of more than 25 people now who are based in different regions around the world who also contribute to our site and help us understand what's happening at a local level in, in countries as far as Israel, South Korea, Kenya, uh, Portugal, Spain, France, uh, Argentina, Brazil, and of course the US and Canada and Australia as well. So we're really focused on building this international radar for collaborative consumption activity through the website. And from that, we've actually developed Collaborative Labs advisory services, which is really helping uh, cities around the world, like we, what we've just spoken about, and also big companies understand what this disruptive uh, new economy of collaborative consumption really means, and how they can actually be, uh, you know, an active participant and take the most, make the most of these opportunities. So we're helping companies and governments understand, first of all, what does this whole uh, shift mean? And then trying to help them see the roadmap forward for how they can actually incorporate these ideas into their existing strategies, or in fact, start thinking of completely new areas um, for their business or for, for the government themselves. Well, I think really interesting time for you guys, and uh, I wish you the success. It's always it's always terrific um, having another Australian on the show. We have a lot of, we have a lot of Americans on the show, and uh, right. it's nice to talk to Australians at the forefront of of what's happening. So I really appreciate your time in the podcast. We'll put links to your site up on the show notes, and. Yeah, all the best with collaborative consumption. I'm sure our paths will cross perhaps in a little while to, to have a have an update on where where the state of the industry is. No doubt, and that would sound sounds great. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks for your time, Lauren. Bye bye. Cheers. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. James, collaborative consumption is actually one of those buzzwords that I actually like. It actually is, <laughs> it makes sense, it feels right, and it's, 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 uh, it's not one of these, um, you know, buzzwordy for its own sake type of terms. Yeah, no, it's definitely definitely got a lot of value. I mean, I've I've used plenty of uh, collaborative consumption uh, services myself, and yeah, I always find them doing amazing things. I think it's um, yeah, I think it's uh, part of a trend that's just going to keep on continuing. I wouldn't be surprised if it's sort of um, you know a major a major force over the next you know five to ten years. I don't see it slowing down in any way. Which um, which are your favourite sites that you've used? 
So, I mean, obviously, collaborative consumption is uh, a whole range of uh, different services. I mean, there's uh, it goes from everything from obviously Airbnb, you know, I love, uh, you know, fantastic. It's kind of deals you'd never get any other way. Um, but um, even the local um, go get car share um, service, um, you know, I don't I don't have my own um, personal car and actually use, you know, this service. Uh, instead, it's basically, you know, they have cars all around the, the neighborhood and you just kind of book them when you need them. Um, and yeah, that's, that's fantastic for me. Um, I hate having to own a car and all the maintenance that goes with it. Can I tell you what's really taking off in New York and is, I think it's going to change the city dramatically is this, um, it's called the city bike program. Have you heard of it? No, no. What is it doing? So, so what it is, is it's, it's New York city in collaboration with city bank. Um, mm -hmm. really, I think they've sunk 60 or 70 million into it. City bank, which is a pretty significant amount of money, but they get all the branding. Now, every couple of streets in New York, they've got a massive rack of bikes, mm. maybe 30 bikes. Wow. And you pre-register 100 bucks for the year. Mm. I think there's a daily and a, and a weekly rate as well, but I think that they try to push people into the annual 95 bucks. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, you get a, a little fob, like a little uh, plastic thing. You go up mm -hmm. to the, um, you know, the where the bicycles are kept. You just pop it in. You take out a bicycle. You cycle wherever you need to go. And because there's a there's another one very close to where you're going, you cycle to where you want to go, and you pop it in the, the the next bike rack, and you're done. And you've used your mm. bicycle as a form of transportation. You don't have to worry about locking it up. You don't have to worry about theft. You don't have to worry about where to keep it overnight. And um, there was an article by one of the Forbes writers, Dan Frommer. He writes about private equity and startups and IPOs. And uh, I haven't actually read that article. I've got it on my list to read. But he says, um, City Bikes on my new iPhone. I imagine <laughs> talking about how he just doesn't know how he's, he's lived without it. And a really terrific example, not only of collaborative consumption, but also private and public partnership in a really terrific way. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic idea. And you can see it um, definitely makes a lot of sense in big cities, um, anywhere where there's, you know, a huge number of people and they can, you know, share these resources. Um, yeah, you can just imagine, I'm sure there's tons of inefficiencies of the way we're, you know, consuming stuff currently. And, um, and yeah, I'm sure these services will continue to do well. It's... Um They've also, you know, you, you mentioned the word execution earlier that the executing is, is, is difficult, which, mm. you know, the execution is everything. They've executed on this exceptionally well. The bikes, uh, they've thought of everything. They've got baskets. They've got lights. They've got bells. They, mm -hmm. they sort of, you know, vandal proof in a way. Um, yep. And even the way apparently they rolled them out in the city, you know, my one friend here said literally we woke up one day and they were just everywhere at the same time. So just, mm. you know, the network was just put in place as opposed to just rolling it out slowly and people trying it and then not liking it because they couldn't find somewhere to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, New York, New York, um, they've got good leadership here and they do smart things. So, yeah, terrific example of collaborative consumption. Um, yeah. I think. I think collaborative is really, yeah, I mean, collaborative consumption obviously combined with location-based is a very, very strong combination of, of factors, obviously, Airbnb, you know, being one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Look, I mean, the other benefit, um, as you say, with, it, with execution is, um, you know, if you own your, own your own car or own your own bike or whatever, you have to, you know, you have to set up everything like, you know, lights and baskets and you have to worry and think about that and decide what the best bike is and all that kind of stuff. Whereas with 
you know, collaborative consumption. You know, somebody's already kind of done that research for you. You know, you don't have to put any effort into actually thinking about that. You just go and use a service, and um, and yeah, if it's done well, it's it's actually a, a genuinely better experience you would get than if you were, you know, sorting it all out yourself. Um, so yeah, there's tons tons of ways these things have value. Yeah, it's, it's um, definitely a space. Of course, there's you know these things open up a whole you know legal issues you know airbnb there's been some legal issues in new york which you know in, a, in certain circumstances it's illegal um, mm. I, um if you are listening to this podcast and you do like to travel i'll give you you know a tip that you, you, you know what the surprising thing that came out of my airbnb because i'm staying in an apartment that i found on airbnb a sublet oh, yeah. um was it's actually a terrific way to see how the locals live, meet interesting locals, and actually see interesting apartments. So there's actually almost a social experience to it. I saw probably half a dozen apartments. I saw some really fascinating, interesting apartments. And I actually made a couple of friends from mm. actually seeing these apartments. So there were there were all these positive externalities through Airbnb. And, I, and I've been racking my brain to sort of think how can this sort of spin off into something, you know. And I think there are loads of local tour guide services where you can connect with someone. Maybe that's got 20 minutes free and you can say, hey, if you're a tourist, I'm a, you know, here's a shout out, come use me. Or there was, there, there's something else in that sort of social side of it as you know which which i sort of um, would be interested to, to to think about yeah definitely yeah no i've, I've had some great experiences as well uh, i met a i stayed at a guy's apartment when i was in um san francisco a couple of years back and yeah it's just a great character it's just you know that kind of um i guess forced proximity or whatever it's kind of like uh you know you just meet people you wouldn't usually meet and um you know interact with them in ways you wouldn't normally do and it makes people very open so yeah no i think it's i think you're right there's definitely some other element there that's going on i'd it'd be a bold hotel company that somehow could marry the two and somehow get involved <laughs> You randomly get assigned with somebody else, <laughs> share a bed with somebody else. <laughs> yeah, or something, you know. I mean, the hotel company should be, you know, I, I don't think they necessarily have to be scared of this space, but yeah. the fact that people are comfortable sharing other people's homes, are, you know, there they are some benefits in terms of credibility and things like that. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting space. So, um, you know, collaborative consumption, is, is definitely here to stay and I just love it when technology makes things more efficient you know and it's just certainly makes things yeah and th that's what it's about you know I'm, I'm not one of these people where you know spinning lights and beep beeping things and faster processes for its own sake um, excite me but this stuff you know excites me when things are more efficient when you have resources just sitting there even just forget the profit motive but even just from an efficiency point of view just to just to have assets you know on, on, a, on a community level utilized um, it's just I almost feel it's a moral responsibility when I walk around rich areas in Sydney and rich areas in Melbourne and rich areas in New York I and mean, there's always a chunk of apartments that you can just see that are empty you always just think oh man that's just there's almost like you know you can't do that of course they can do that but it's just like you know if you want to buy something you got to be part of the community and um, anyway I'm digressing <laughs> <laughs> as, as we do um, I think that's it for episode number 
23. Um, James, thanks as always for joining us. And if you're listening to the podcast, thanks for joining us. We will catch you on episode number 24. Have a good one.